The following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Let's turn to God's Word, and we're going to be reading out of 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 3. We continue in our series through the book of 1 Peter. It's verse-by-verse verse, uh, series through the book of 1 Peter as we started off the year. And remember, this is God's Word as we read it. It's his authoritative Word. It's given to us. Uh, for our hearing, for our righteousness, for our growth, and for our faith. So let's read, in, in, uh, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him, And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Well, last week we heard an introduction to the book of 1 Peter, this letter written by the Apostle Peter uh, to to Christians everywhere and in many different places. And Jesus told his disciples that their allegiance to him before Jesus was crucified and left the earth. He told them that your allegiance to me will put you on a collision course with the the values and passions and desires of the culture. And so by following me, you'll be in opposition to to many of the virtues and values of the culture. And this was true then, thousands of years ago, and it's true even today. And 1 Peter is the perfect guidance for those of us that desire to, to maintain our conviction and allegiance to Jesus and also engage in the world with love and hope and humility and compassion to those who don't know Jesus. And so this is great for us who say, how do I stay true to Christ and true to the Bible and read it and, 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 and maintain my allegiance to him, but also love my neighbor who doesn't know him? And that's why we're going through this, this, this book, because we think it is, is great guidance for us. The Christian is an alien in this world, we learned last week in our introduction, but we are not to alienate the world. We are different from the world, but we are not to isolate ourselves from it. And so our teaching series for the next several weeks will be to orient our hearts and minds around this theme of engaging with, with the culture, with hope and humility and wisdom as followers of Jesus. And so First, First Peter shows us in our passage today this two-part reality uh, for the Christian as, they, as we engage in this. And this two-part reality has been called this. Here's the phrase. It's the phrase, the already and the not yet. And this phrase we are going to see in various ways throughout the book of 1 Peter. And this is not a question and answer. Like, for instance, it isn't, uh, is this U of A game over already? (laughs) No, not yet. It's the fourth overtime, okay? But rather, it is a, a reality of the gospel. There is an already... And present reality that we enjoy 
of the gospel. There's a truth that we have right now as Christians that we live in. We have an identity that is present and real, that, is, that we're empowered. It's functional today. And then there's a not yet part of the truth of the gospel, reality of the gospel, that has, already, has not yet been completely fulfilled. And so we long for this. We, we long for this completion of this future fulfillment of the blessings of the gospel. And so, so First Peter says, I want you to realize this idea. If you want to engage in the world and maintain your, your allegiance to Jesus, as we're going to learn what that means as we walk through this book, you're going to need to know this term. And so I want you to adopt this term. I want you to learn about it today. I want you to put it in your vocabulary. And I want you to understand its meaning and <clears throat> operate out of this idea that the gospel is real today for you, and yet there's also something that we long for that hasn't yet come. And if you do this, I believe it'll, it'll help equip you and encourage you and strengthen you in how you love Jesus and love your neighbor who might not know Jesus yet or uh, hates Jesus now or whatever. And so the first is the blessing of the already. The already is found in verse 3. If you want to look at that, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The blessing of the gospel is now. There is something that God has done in the past that has a present reality. The power of the gospel to forgive and to make us new and to bring new life out of a dead heart that does not know God as a result of sin. To unite us with Jesus in a relationship that is described as a bond of unity and friendship and peace and love forever. This is something that we experience today. God has acted in the past on our behalf to bless us in Christ, and we experience that truth right now with full power, with full new life. It's not something we long for in the future. We are adopted into His family. There's a quality to the gospel, a quality that calls it a, a gift. It is a gift of His grace based on a relationship with God rather than a form of payment for a work done. You see, this is the quality of the gospel. It isn't a form of payment for the work that we've done. So if you have an employee or you have a job, you do the work and then you are paid for that work. The quality of the gospel is something that is not like that. It is a gift that is given. And because of that gift, it's, it's established on the relationship with God rather than the form of payment. It says that we are born again to a living hope. We are born again. And I just want to, I don't, I don't know what kind of baggage you carry today with that phrase, born again. Uh, maybe it's a term that you are completely comfortable with. Maybe you love that term. Maybe you're, you have a little discomfort or unfamiliarity with that term. You don't want to bear that, that term because it might label you as a, as a religious fanatic, right? You don't want to be the born again Christian that is just this fanatic, this religious nut, okay? Or maybe... You just love this term, and it's very warm to you, and you have no idea what I'm talking about. Well, whatever it is, leave your baggage at the door. And let's look at this phrase, born again, what it means to be a born-again Christian, and, and see it in the beauty that it really is. And to do that, I need to exercise my $30,000 seminary degree and, and bring some Greek to you, okay? All of that for this, so that you can know what is going on in this passage, and it is amazingly beautiful. You're going to love it. The phrase, has caused us to be born again, is, is a verb that grammatically speaking is in the aorist tense, 
and the active voice. Huh? Here's where we go. All right, ready? You're gonna, we'll give you some credits for this, okay? Some Greek grammar credit. The aorist tense, it's a verb that's talking about something that was done in the past in a definite moment that has present reality today, okay? It refers to a past event that has a present reality. God did something a long time ago. Based on His mercy, based on His pleasure and grace, not based on any foreseen good in us, he acted out of, out of his own good pleasure to initiate with us, to call us, to choose us, to love us, to reveal himself to us. And this action in, on, in God's, on God's behalf, in his own will, he, it resulted in us being in a state of existing with God, existence with God that is characterized by a bond of union and friendship with him. Okay? So this is the aorist tense and in the active voice. Here's what the active voice is. This means that God's role in our salvation is like the role that I had, as it talks about in this phrase, has caused us to be born again in a similar, a similar function that the role that I played in fathering my children. Now don't get too far ahead, okay? Stay with me. Let's be in step with, with where this is going. Stay on pace. Spiritually speaking, God has fathered us to new life. Not like the first kind of birth that we had. A spiritual kind of birth. God has fathered us. His engagement in our new life is the kind of engagement that I have in my children's life. That apart from that active engagement and that active role that I played, my children would not exist and not, would not have life. We are born to new life and therefore are an, we are the object of His affection his love, his mercy, and his grace. So how do we, how do we understand this? How do we understand this, uh, this blessing of the gospel? Our existence and identity is based on the virtue of God's loving mercy. God, is, is, as Father, is not our babysitter, so he's not just caring for us and watching over us. God is not like our big brother that's just giving us an example to live by, and we watch him and we do as he does. He's not like our landlord that owns everything and, has, and protects us and and, and, and gives us the things that we need and provides for us and gives us shelter and resource. He is not like that. He, he has caused us to be born. I did not consult with my children on their being born. My fathering them was not contingent on their future behavior. Because I probably wouldn't have done it. <laughs> and neither would have you. There is, there is no such category like this anywhere else in our understanding in the world. And there's no such category in Scripture as a non-born-again Christian. The Christian is the one who has been fathered, brought into existence, a new existence, a new identity, a new life by the gracious initiation of our Father and not just a father figure. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's not just like this father figure that, that is like our earthly father that we look up to, but the very one who has given us our being. And it's not like our first kind of being, our first kind of nature that is apart from God and cut off from our relationship, but a new one brought into life with him. Is that worth $30,000 for you? <laughs> to understand what it means that he has caused us to be born again to new life. Isn't that beautiful? This is what we have in Christ. 
This is the mercy that we have when we have Jesus. This is the already that we experience. This is the already blessing of the gospel. We exist in that today. We're not waiting for that. We're not waiting for that relationship with Jesus. We are, we are forgiven. We have new life and power that forgives us of our sins and imputes the perfect righteousness of Jesus to us so we are seen by God, by the virtue and moral uh, morality of Jesus as perfect, sinless, forgiven. And then, so that's the blessing of the already. Now there's the, the confidence in the not yet, because obviously we do long for something else, don't we? Something more, a fulfillment, because it feels like we haven't really arrived yet. I mean, there's still suffering, there's still pain. And look at the already, or the, the not yet that is communicated in verse 4 and 5. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you see this? There's something that we still wait for. There's something we still long for. There's something, and the Bible actually says that all of creation actually, in fact, groans for this, this coming, this longing, this fulfillment. We're all hurting. I don't need to convince you of that. Open up the paper, if you can find one. Go on, uh, click on the news, and see what is going on in the world. Look at your own life. Look at your own marriage, your relationships, your work, and see the pain. And you will find out that, yeah, there is something I'm still waiting for. There is something I'm still longing for. And last week we learned because we are exiles. We are, this is not our forever home. And Peter keeps going in this theme and he says, we, we haven't been spared completely from the difficulty of this world. There is sorrow, there is sickness, there is persecution, there's confusion and in various ways and in different, different times. And the full benefit for the follower of Jesus doesn't, all, doesn't come all at once, right? So if you experience this new life and forgiveness in Jesus when you realize He loved for you, that He died on the cross for you, and in whatever context it meant for you where you gave your life to Jesus, and then life got hard and difficult and you did cry after that out of pain and sorrow and you were confused and there were times in your life where you were like, this is it, this is the Christian life, and you said, well, maybe this isn't it. Maybe this isn't real. Maybe I missed it. Maybe Jesus isn't the way. Maybe there's something else that must be added to the already, to this life with Jesus that I haven't found the secret to. And we get confused, and it's because there's something that is not yet. There's a helpful analogy that was uh, told to me by uh, theologian and biblical scholar um, Michael Goheen, and he tells the story of his wife's spaghetti dinner. His wife is a great I didn't know that there was a spectrum of like great spaghetti cooks. I thought it was like you cook it or not. But anyway, he talks about the sauce that she makes and simmers all day long and, and his wife's cooking dinner. And he comes in as, before the dinner has been served and he smells it and it's deliciously smelling and he goes over to the pot and he, he takes a little bread or something or his finger and he dips it in the sauce and he, and he eats the sauce and he is, it's delicious and he is satisfied. And he asks this question, have I, have, have I had dinner yet? Yes or no? And what do you think? I mean, just raise your hand. Has he had dinner yet? Technically, has he had dinner yet? Raise your hand if you think so. Okay, a couple. Uh, has he not had dinner yet? Raise your hand if you're in that camp. Okay, everybody except like three. Okay, this is, uh, this is, a, you're both, this is a great 
kind of test question because you're, you're all wrong and you're all right, okay? It's, it's the kind of question where both are true. The, the blessings of the gospel are now. They are really now. There is a present reality, but they're also future. He has had dinner, but it is merely a, a, a foreshadow of dinner. It is merely just a taste of dinner that the full dinner is yet to, yet to come, okay? We find ourselves today as Christians, if you're a Christian, you find yourself today, and this is so important, God wants us to know this, in our present reality, you find yourself in a time period in history that is so important to understand. The kingdom of God has come. The power of new life is here. And Jesus said this. He said, the kingdom has come. Repent. Repent and believe. Be baptized into this new life. And yet we also hear Jesus saying the kingdom of God is, has yet to come. It is not of this world. It is future. God's power is broken into history. He forgives sins. He makes sinful people uh, children of God. The resurrection has happened. His death has been conquered. The same power that raised Jesus out of the grave into new life is the same power that resides in us by the power of the Holy Spirit that gives us new life. And it's happening today, right now. The Holy Spirit is with you. And you are a new person, a new creation. Something already has happened that is all that you need. And yet there's something that is also future that we long for. We're waiting for the future fulfillment. And so the Bible paints this wonderful picture, this beautiful picture of the symmetry of God's work in the already and the not yet. God is the one who prepares us for eternity with Him, with him forever by the power of the Holy Spirit and he is the one who guards us for eternal blessing with him one day. So you see this symmetry? God is responsible for two things, and there's symmetry to it. He is the one that prepares us for eternity, and he's the one that guards us for eternity so that we will encounter that future fulfillment he's, in prom- he's promised to us. So it's like, um, this, consider this dinner party, okay? just continuing with the dinner party theme. You have spared no expense. You have rented out a very expensive uh, banquet hall. You're going to throw a party uh, for a very special occasion. You've spared no expense. You've brought the finest linens. You have hired the finest chefs. And you've set the table. And the hour has come for this wonderful dinner. And you forgot one minor detail. You didn't invite anybody. (laughs) God assures us that he who sets the table and prepares us for eternity with him is also the one that invites us and brings us to the table. Paul says in Philippians 2, he reminds us that it is God who works in us both to will and to work out for his good pleasure. God initiates with us new life and he guards us in that new life. He preserves us, he governs us, and he carries out his promise to us, so that when that not yet arrives and we long for that fulfillment, we will not be put to shame. We will be with Him forever. This is an important aspect of the gospel to understand the already and not yet. And you know, we often, we often forget this. What happens when we, when we lose this symmetry of Scripture? Uh, let's say we lose the sight of the already. Let's say we lose one or the other. 
If we lose the sight of the already, we lose freedom. Consider this, if we're uncertain of our present status with God, if we ask that question, what does God think of me? What is his view of me? What is... What does he think about me today, right now? And not, not when Jesus comes and heaven comes. I mean, right now. If we do not have a clear understanding of the blessing of the gospel in the already, we will lose our freedom because we will be chronically trying to please God through our merits. We will chronically keeping, like, yeah, one foot in grace. I know he loves me and died for me, but just in case I'm going to I'm going to keep trying to do good. I'm going to try to please him. I'm going to walk on eggshells. And we're always going to be insecure, wondering, what does he think of me today? We'll live good lives in order to please him and earn his favor. We'll always be under the fear of losing his love. Maybe one day that one sin will be too many and God will finally say, I've loved you. I've been gracious to you. I've been merciful to you. But come on, I got to say no eventually. And we're wondering, when will he say that? Or, instead of seeking to please him, we will, we will rebel from him because we will see the end road and we will say, you know what, I'm never going to be that person that can please him like I should. So I am just going to rebel from him and kind of, I'm going to preempt, I'm going to just create a, a preemptive finality. I'm just going to rebel against him and that's going to happen eventually, so at least it'll be my choice and not his. So when we lose the already, the blessing of the gospel today, we will continually seek to please God through our work, earning his favor through our merit, and not trusting in the work of Jesus for us. But what happens if we lose the not yet? Because we can error in that side as well. We'll lose our confidence. We will misunderstand our struggles that we experience today. We'll misunderstand those struggles for God's uh, lack of care (laughs) and his lack of... uh, presence in our life. We'll put too much hope in our circumstances, and we will strive to find ultimate joy in the possession of our life and the things that are going on today. So when we fail to lose sight of the not yet, the future fulfillment, when life is hard, we will say, God, what is going on? Where are you? I thought you loved me. I thought you cared for me. This isn't what I expected. And so we'll lose confidence in God's promise for us. But there is a way, thankfully, there is a way to walk forward that will resist the errors of both of these. And Peter says that it is more valuable than gold. He says there's a way that you will not fall into error, that you can have this perspective of the already and not yet. You'll know who you are today, and you'll have joy in that, and you'll have confidence in who you are and what God will do in the future, that you don't need to fear what's going on today. And it's more valuable than gold. You know what it is? It's faith. But not just any kind of faith. Peter says genuine faith. Faith is not just merely believing in God. I have faith that God exists. I have faith that He's powerful. Peter clarifies. He says, I want you to know something unique about faith, a character and a quality of faith that you need to understand. It's not just believing about God. This genuine faith, it is hoping in the substance of God's work for you yesterday, today, and the future that defines your existence before God and before your neighbor today. If we let anything else define our existence, 
then our faith and our profession of faith is not genuine. And the Bible says we are the most vulnerable of people. If anything else is our treasure, then this genuine faith, the work of God, the substance of His work for us, then we're vulnerable. We don't have confidence. We don't have freedom. We don't have hope. And you know what Peter defines as as genuine faith? And here is Peter, as I mentioned last week. He's the spokesperson for Christianity. He is the leader of the disciples of Jesus, the thousands who have come to faith. He preaches his first sermon, and 3,000 people uh, are added to their numbers. And he is, he's the leader of the church at this point. The, the church is born, and he's the rock. Jesus says he's the rock upon which Christ is building his church. This is Peter, right? He's, he's the man, number one, on earth, leading God's church. And he defines the portrait of genuine faith in his most theologically profound way that he knows how. And how does he define it? He says, you love Jesus. Not so deep as you thought it would be, right? You love him. Don't you love that answer? What is genuine faith? What is this golden, valuable key and secret to a life of freedom and confidence in God. And Peter says, you love Jesus. Even though you don't see him, even though he's not with you right now face to face and you see him, you love him, you believe him, you trust in him. This reminds us of Thomas as we think of, as now as we've come to know him as doubting Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples. Jesus is killed on the cross. He's buried for three days. He, he raises from the grave. He, he's alive and resurrects. And Thomas says, I don't believe it. I will not believe it unless I see him with my own eyes, unless I touch the wounds in his hands and put my fingers in his, in his side that has been cut open. I will not believe. And Peter would, no doubt, he would, this would be brought to his memory as he thinks about this and what it means. He's standing there as Thomas is saying this. He's standing in the room as Jesus enters into the room and says, Thomas, why do you doubt? And Thomas says, I believe. And Jesus says, you believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who have not yet seen, yet believe. And Jesus is speaking to you and I because we have not seen Jesus. He's talking to us And he says the genuine faith is the kind of the substance of faith that loves him, that trusts him and believes in him and what he has said and done for us, even though we have not seen him. We trust in Jesus for the direction of our life, even when circumstances pull us in a different direction. Even when we don't see where Jesus is directing us today, we trust him and love him. That's faith. That's genuine faith. When you love Jesus, his opinion about anything, matters more than anything else. And so to love Jesus is to boil down to two words, praise and obedience. Praise, thank you, blessed be God, the Father who has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Blessed, blessed be Him. We love you for what you have done. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for calling us. And we are obedient to Him. And now I give you my life as a faithful follower of Jesus and child of God, I give you my life and everything that you say and anything that you say bears the most weight in my life. And Peter says, that's love. And that's what it means to love someone. 
That's what it means to love God. It means that we can be in a relationship with Jesus even though we don't see Him. That leaves us with an inexpressible joy and an unshakable confidence in our life today and in the future. Peter is describing what it means to be a genuine and true Christian. It's a person whose hope is in the already of the gospel and Jesus' work and in the not yet of this future hope that we long for, in spite of what is going on in our world. The biblical understanding of salvation and the gospel of Jesus defies the notion that our hope of our salvation or the hope of the world and our culture and its well-being rests in our good works or our understanding of current circumstances. There's a category of faith that is only kind of faith that is truly that will truly lead us to salvation. It is genuine faith. There's only one kind of faith that is saving faith, and that's genuine faith. And that's Peter uses that difficult phrase, that difficult sentence in the last couple verses that we read, isn't it? It obtains this genuine faith, although it is challenged through suffering, although it is um, stretched through sorrow and confusion, it leads ultimately to our salvation. Genuine faith that rests in the work of Jesus for us today and into the future. Genuine. It's an easy word to understand. It's the definite, the genuine article, the, the real deal. There's no compromise to this kind of faith that hopes in God and loves Jesus. Simply believing God is not genuine faith. Simply hoping that things will get better is not genuine faith. It is the result of placing our hope in the new birth on the basis of Jesus' uh, Jesus's life and death and resurrection, the Father's election, the Son's sacrifice for us, the Holy Spirit's preservation till the end. This is salvation. Here's a quote from uh, Pastor Dan Doriani, and he says, Through Christ we have life, and no force internally or externally can destroy it. Even when we have trials, we take heart because they demonstrate that our allegiance to God is genuine, especially when we preserve, uh, persevere through them. Peter mentions this in the context of his whole letter to show us why we are made to wait. So maybe you are wondering, as I often wonder, okay, the already is so good. Why has the not yet taken so long? Have you ever been invited to someone's house for dinner? They come over for dinner. I've prepared a nice meal for you. You show up, and the chicken has yet to be thawed. Yes. How horrible is that? You invited me over. Now I have to wait for an hour. This isn't fun. This isn't great. This isn't gracious. I could have waited at home. Call me when it's ready. Why does God do this? Why does God say the already is so beautiful? You've been born again to a living hope. Now, wait a minute. Year after year. See, the early church, when they, they thought the not yet would be in their lifetime, they thought the future fulfillment would be soon. Like, like a week, like a day, like a year, a couple years. And we've waited thousands. Why? I'm angry about this. There is a time that will come 
that we need to maintain our confidence in the future fulfillment of God's promise. And we wait, and the Bible tells us that we wait for a certain reason. Peter talks about this in his overall theme in his book, and we're going to get to this, and it's going to be awesome. He's going to round it out, but I'm going to give the cookies away right now. This is a time of the witness of God's people to engage in the world without compromise to Jesus, with our allegiance to Him. It is a time in which we currently live to love Jesus, to follow Him, to pursue obedience to Him, and loving the world, engaging in our culture, and being a bright light of hope. Apart from Christ, there is none. There, this is the time that is made to proclaim to the world the beauty of the gospel. And we see this in his book. We also see it in our passage even today where he says, even though you have been for a time, you endure suffering, this is also for your good. This is also for your benefit because it is, it is discipling you. It is training you. It is preparing you into maturity. It's strengthening and stretching you, your character. And so this isn't just for it because maybe you're thinking, well, that's great, but I would love to be with Jesus right now. Why do I care about my neighbor? Not only should we, but it's also for our benefit that we wait because our character is being strengthened. But let's talk about this as a time that is made to proclaim the, to the world the beauty of the gospel. When we misunderstand this, uh, as we often do, we follow the values of the culture. We take our cues from what, is, what the culture is doing. We, we wonder, what is... What should we be passionate about? What viewpoints should we have? What, what foundations should we rest on and stand on? Um, what's, what should we do? Rather than pointing the culture to the hope that is in Christ. We should be asking questions like, what did God intend for friendship? And, where, and how, does, how do we point to the hope that is in friendship from God's wisdom? What is God's intention? What did He intend for marriage? What did he intend for sexuality? What did he intend for the use of political influence? What did God intend for the advancement of technology and science? What did God intend for the accumulation and the pursuit and the stewardship of wealth? We should be asking this, these questions. And this is a time that God has us in to proclaim to the world with the wisdom of God's word, the beauty of the already and the not yet. So God's people today are meant to show the world God's good intention, the beauty of the gospel, the design and the joy that is found in all things as they are lived out for the glory of God according to His purpose. God's people, you and I, are meant to show the world hope that in spite of confusion and suffering and sorrow, there is hope. So don't you think it's important then that we would believe that, that we would grasp that, that we would become fluent in understanding what do we hope for? How do we live as we wait? We're meant to be so acquainted with the hope that does not spoil, so much so that all those who don't know this hope will see our life and they will marvel at it. They will look at our life and it will be attractive to them without compromising our allegiance to Jesus. This is so hard to do, but this is what we are encouraged to do. What answer, otherwise, what answer can you give to a person who loses, who loses their marriage, who loses a child, 
who loses their money or their health. What hope can you give to them other than just saying, you'll get through this, I'm here for you, you can find better, you can do better, there's a silver lining. What hope do we have? What can you say to a person who loses? You can speak courageously with wisdom and hope and love into a person's life who has experienced great loss without diminishing the pain of that loss and show them that that there is a hope that Peter says that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. I love those three words, and these are good words that he used. I'm glad he used them because they mean different things. Imperishable. This is eternal. This is going to last forever. It isn't going to, there's no end date to it. It doesn't expire. It never perishes. God's promise is sure. And He proves this to us throughout our lives and in different ways and never greater than, than Jesus, the eternal Son of God, becoming a man and dying a sinner's death and raising from the dead and interceding for us now, praying, to, praying for us right now. undefiled. This blessing of the gospel is the perfect fit for us. It is the perfect fit for what we're designed for. We are designed to know God in a relationship that's so intimate, so meaningful, so close. There is no equal to it. This means that there is also no equal to it. There is no compromise for even those who are non-Christians, who don't know Jesus. There is no equivalent journey. There is no equivalent destination. There is no equivalent reality that will bring them joy and hope and confidence in this life or the next, but Jesus Christ. This is what we were made for and unfading. This is important because isn't there a sense that of eternity with God that, you know, maybe the first couple minutes of this reality with God is just going to be so unbelievable and it will be the fulfillment of a long-awaited joy. And we will be with Him in heaven, and we will see Him. We will know Him as we are known. The Bible says we will fully know as we are fully known. And we will be overjoyed. But what's going to happen? Like, maybe How long will that last? A couple days, a week, a month? I mean, there will be a great party. But like a year, a couple years? What about like, what about like a million years? Are we still going to like it after that? What about, like, what about like 95 million years? Well, the Bible says, I want you to realize something about the fulfillment of life with God forever. It's unfading. The first taste of the meal is just as satisfying and sweet as the last. Or the next, really, because there won't be a last. That there will be this continual joy, this continual sweetness, this continual satisfaction We will we will be at this banquet that he invites us to. We will be satisfied and we will never get full. We will never, we will never be like, oh, okay, I've had enough. We will, we will, we will never have this wanderlust, right? We will never have this grass is greener on the other side. We will never say, this is awesome, but now that I've been here for a while, what's next? There's nothing greener. There's nothing better than Christ. So there's a certain inexpressible joy that comes to a person whose hope is not in what we must do, but it is in a hope in what has been done for us by God, through Christ, and applied by the work of the Spirit. Has this hope made its way to you? Has this hope taken deep root in your life? 
have you understood and you, do you understand now the already and the not yet? And, and I want to ask you and challenge you, where have you fallen into error? Has it been in the already? Do you, have you forgotten or you just not, don't understand that Jesus, that God loves you on the basis of the merit of Christ and his righteousness? That he did not consult with you in, in, in causing you to be born again, but he loves you out of his own good pleasure? As his child, he loves you in spite of your record, in spite of your character. Maybe that's what you need to take from today. You need to say, I need to, I need to believe that Jesus loves me and I need to stop working to save myself because I've been doing that my whole life. And it leaves me without freedom. I'm scared. I'm worried. I'm wondering when will God finally give up on me? Or maybe the error for you is in the not yet. Maybe you are so tied to this earth that everything in your life has to be so comfortable, so right, so put in place that you are, you are really just an, a result of your circumstances. Your joy is found in, in your present circumstances. The climate of culture or your work or your present relationships defines your joy and, and your involvement and your love for others. But what if your hope was in the future promise being fulfilled? What if your hope was in the perfect that is yet to come? What if you're at that dinner party and you look at the chicken and you say, I know that it's still frozen, but it's going to be good. And so I'm going to wait and I'm going to be satisfied. And so in the midst of my suffering, thank you, Lord, because your promise is certain. I'm going to eat eventually. (laughs) Despite what the evidence gives, Has this hope taken root in your life? Let's trust in this. Let's stay rooted in this. Let's follow the wisdom of Scripture as we go and love God and also love our neighbors. Let's pray.